You're listening to the Journey to Impact Fireside Chat Series with Gino Borges, curator of the Poetry of Impact, a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. Hi, this is Gino Borges. I'm here with Nick Green, co-founder and CEO of Thrive Market, an online market on a mission to make healthy living easy and accessible for every budget, lifestyle, and geography. Nick also started a national education services company called Ivy Insiders from his Harvard dorm room, which helped over 20,000 students get into better colleges before being acquired by Revolution Prep in 2010. Nick has a passion for combining technology and business to solve large social problems. And while he's is important his energy into Thrive Market, which I'm guessing takes up the bulk of your energy. Uh, Nick enjoys traveling, water skiing, and supporting other social entrepreneurs as an angel investor and advisor. Um, recently, Nick donated his 2020 salary as Thrive CEO to the Thrive COVID-19 Relief Fund. Welcome, Nick. Thanks so much for having me, Jim. <laughs> yeah. I um, really feel fortunate to have you here. Our mutual friend, uh, Brahim, um, connected us, and I've been following your company for a while. And the more I read about your backstory, I, I realized that there's nothing nonlinear or, excuse me, linear about um, your path through entrepreneurship. Can you sort of take us to that original inspiration where you realized that um, maybe the way that you were convinced to go to Harvard or what you thought you were going to be? all of a sudden started to become much more malleable and saying, it's like, maybe that's not me. Maybe this is the way. Yeah. Well, as you pointed out, there hasn't been a straight line way. It's been a meandering path. And, you know, that wasn't the way the first 18 years of my life very much were that like direct path. And, you know, Harvard it was and straight A's it was and SAT tests and all of the hoops that you jump through on that sort of constructed artificial path that, that is, uh, you know, education. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, entrepreneurship was a massive departure for me. And I've, I've described myself as an accidental entrepreneur. I don't think I would have jumped off the train myself. Um, but, you know, I was, I was sort of pushed off or fell off, as it were, um, and, and mainly just driven by my interest in impact. Um, and I wouldn't have described it that way when it happened. But my first company was helping high school kids um, in places like where I grew up, which was you know, middle class and middle of middle America. I grew up outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, but helping them do SAT prep. Um, and that just had come from my own experience. You know, I did very well in the SAT, but had lots of friends and even family members who were every bit as smart as me. I didn't do as well. And, you know, we took the SAT as something that you just go in and take and like you get what you get. Who knows why? Sure. When I got to Harvard, I realized that it's actually a game. And, you know, most of my peers have been prepping for it for, for years before taking it. And, you know, I, I realized very quickly at Harvard that the SAT is a microcosm for a lot of other uh, games that, uh, you know, if you know how to play or have the, you know, born into a, a, a family or a community uh, or you know, get a set of experiences, you can play it in one way. And if you don't, 
uh, you can't. And so access was something that kind of struck me to my core from the standpoint of education. And that led to creating this business that was, you know, basically saying, let's make test prep affordable because, you know, my parents never would have paid hundreds of dollars an hour for an SAT tutor. They wouldn't have even paid, you know, $150 for an SAT prep class from Revolution or from from, uh, Princeton Review or Kaplan. So we came in and said, let's do a really affordable SAT prep course that is for, for everyday kids taught by Ivy League undergrads. And, um, you know, it, I didn't even think of it as a business at the time, but it, it rapidly turned into one. And, and you know, the, the rest is history. I, I haven't looked back and haven't gotten back on the, the, the straight train since then. Take me through this idea of the game. Um, is it, uh, you know, this idea of game or that there's a formal pattern? Essentially, I suspect that you realize that there's particular formal patterns behind these outward facing uh, tests. But I also suspect that you are probably gifted to some extent on also seeing uh, formal patterns in like consumer behavior and in terms of societal patterns. And so just as much as there may have been a game and you may have gamified the prep, is there an element of uh, gamification taking place with your current uh, platform based on you being able to see formal patterns as opposed to most, most, most people think of life as sort of these circumstantial wins and just and think that everything's unique, where I think there's something about you that pierces through circumstantial winds and says, wow, this is an archetypal pattern here. This is what moves people over time uh, consistently while the details may change. And so sort of take us through that understanding that you have and how it sort of moved through your life to be able to get at those formal patterns to be successful um, at what you're doing in terms of um, impact entrepreneurship. And that's a, that's a big question and a deep question. Um, and one I could probably talk for hours on, I mean, you know, pattern recognition is, is everything in entrepreneurship because you're dealing with uncertainty and, you know, if you're going to do something new, you have to see something that other people haven't seen before. Um, you know, I don't want to overextend the SAT metaphor, but, you know, I was good at taking standardized tests in part because I, I saw the patterns in the test. You know, I was able to, um, and I was good at good at pattern recognition, so, so to speak. I think part of the reason a lot of people aren't as good at standardized tests isn't because they don't have the capability to do that. It's just they don't know that the patterns are there. And it's, right. it's one of those things where if you're, if you, for whatever reason, are inclined to look for them, you find them. If you're not inclined to look for them, you don't. It doesn't mean you can't learn. And so, you know, that business was all about, again, broadening access to, to anyone to show them, hey, you can learn to take this test. It's not a test of your intelligence. It's not a test of your merit, right? It's not a test of your scholastic aptitude or whatever the acronym is supposed to stand for. It's a test of how well do you play this game? And just like any other game, anyone can learn. And so, you know, that, you know, it's interesting to kind of think about that, but, but I didn't consciously realize that when I took the SAT, I actually learned it and started to build this business to help other people do it. And, and I did realize at that time that everything else is like that too. And, you know, in school, it's very clear that things are a game, right? You are playing for the gold star. You're playing for the straight A, you're playing for whatever. Um, I think it's less clear on a test. It's even less clear uh, on uh, in life. Right. But, but, but the same is actually true. And, you know, there are more factors and there's more complexity and it's harder to cut through the noise and fewer people do. 
And as a result, most people, you know, are not comfortable going out into the, you know, into this, into the storm of entrepreneurship. Uh, it's much more comfortable to stay on some sort of career track that more mirrors what, you know, I experienced for those first, eight, first 18 years. Uh, and again, I wouldn't have jumped off myself, but for the fact that, you know, this, this opportunity arose and I felt compelled from a mission standpoint. And, you know, in both of my businesses, mission has been a driving force that's helped me to stay motivated, even as the patterns are hard to find. And, you know, that's been the most challenging part of entrepreneurship is when I took the SAT, you know, I felt really smart taking the SAT because I could find every pattern. In entrepreneurship, nobody feels smart, right? You're, you're continually feeling like you don't know what's going on. You're on the roller coaster, not strapped in. Point. What the hell's going to happen? Yeah. And, and yet, uh, and yet there is an underlying pattern. And if you persevere, you're able to get through it. And I found for me that believing in what you're doing, having something bigger that you're going after, having something outside of yourself that you're going after. Um, again, I stumbled into that with that first business, but that, that inspired me to, you know, I described that first business as failing my way to success. Um, but it gave me the, the courage to then in a second business, take on a problem that was even more fundamental right? Going from education to healthy living and food um, at a bigger scale, more ambitious, you know, one that I was arguably even less qualified to actually take on. Um, but it's, but it's worked out and it's been, you know, willingness to kind of deal with the chaos, but also, like you said, find the order. And I, I do believe that order is everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. See, I mean, you mentioned that there was sort of this, um, internal desire to do something uh, beyond yourself. Is there anything in particular, um, either the way you were raised or something that happened to you in your life or something you just sort of came, sort of came in the world with in terms of sort of your DNA and spirit that, that has you sort of hardwired to look outward to helping other people? I don't think there's anything hardwired in me that was like you right. know, inherently magnanimous or something like that. Uh, you know, it's interesting before, before we got on here, we were talking about uh, Jared Diamond's book, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Yeah. And I, I told you that was one of the most like paradigm shifting books for me because it tore away that notion that, you know, we're responsible for our individual accomplishments or even at a <laughs> civilizational level, there's any yeah. credit to be taken, right? Like there are external factors that drive everything. And, um, you know, I believe some of those things are really easy to understand. Some of those things are, you know, you know, are randomness, they are unknowable. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of explaining one's success is going back and constructing a narrative that may have nothing to do with what <laughs> actually led to that success. So, you know, I consider myself in some sense, one step ahead, because I don't have the delusion that I was responsible for it. You know, I don't think I was born to be a social entrepreneur. I don't think I was born with anything necessarily uh, incredible internally or naturally. Um, I was really, really fortunate to be born to, you know, uh, uh, a family that was comfortable, right? We weren't, we were very middle-class, but I never had to worry about, you know, whether there was going to be food on, food on the table. Um, my mom did have to really work hard to make healthy choices uh, at a time and in a place and on a budget where it wasn't, you know, we weren't able to eat organic all the time. Um, you know, I saw, I saw how hard my parents worked. They set an amazing example. Um, I had the good fortune of, you know, having a, uh, parents that were together and happily married and mm -hmm. focused on their family and focused on their kids. So, you know, I, I describe my childhood as kind of like a Norman Rockwellian, like idyllic, <laughs> uh, you know, Minnesota, 
uh, experience. And I, I was extremely lucky to have had that. So, um, you know, I think that, that, uh, that was really amazing. I think probably one thing that did give me some perspective on how lucky I was and a desire to help others was also that, um, you know, I had family members that weren't necessarily as, as fortunate as, as, as I was. My mom grew up uh, very working class. Uh, her family's uh, Mexican American and she was from Denver and no one in her family had gone, had gone to college. Um, she didn't, she's very, very smart. Uh, like if I have any intelligence, it comes from her, but she didn't graduate from, from, from college either. Um, but, uh, and, and so got an, got an opportunity to basically see in, in that family, some of the, the, some of the challenges that, uh, can really, can really face people, um, and see really good people, really smart people, really capable people that, uh, that had, that had real struggles. Um, so I think that probably puts some level of empathy for me. Um, and, uh, and then, like I said, with the, with the test prep business, it was just sort of opportunistic. Like it was like, I saw because I had taken that test. And then because I went to a place where everybody had gotten much more preparation, I saw that like that division. Yeah. Anyone in my shoes would have seen that and probably would have said, Hey, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. So you mentioned, sir, um, in an earlier response, you talked about really being driven by mission. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, I think what really interests me about how, business and impact is coming together is that impact and mission used to be like an accoutrement, right? It used to be sort of an accoutrement of business. Uh, first of all, if a business was successful, it had its philanthropy arm or its giving arm. Um, and then, or it would do some small sort of token gestures. But as we sort of move forward and you're seeing sort of this critical mass built around uh, value-driven lifestyles um, and impact-driven lifestyles, can you talk about a little bit about how being actually in mission isn't a disservice or a disadvantage economically in terms of how you're competing on the marketplace, but all of a sudden is now uh, functions as a potential moat, essentially, because the other sort of legacy uh, grocery stores or uh, platforms that deliver groceries all of a sudden can't instantly shift, right? Um, I mean, Amazon just can't shift all of a sudden from going being known as the big beast to like, we're sort of soft and gentle and, you know, we're working on all these social dynamics that are built into our platform uh, and, or even Costco, for instance, I guess where I'm going with this is, is that I think we're in a very unique time where like we can capitalize values in a way that all of a sudden aren't the warrants not on us anymore. Right. I mean, the warrant used to be on us like 10 years ago, people say, I don't know. It seems a little soft on the edges you know, it's not really clear. I don't know how many customers there are out there. So maybe just sort of unpack that, what, what you're seeing on your end as somebody that started Thrive Market. I know it started probably as an idea that went through a thousand sort of iterations, but in general, I suspect that you are seeing like, aha, we have a type of customer here that is very unique relative and they're shopping likely at places that they would probably prefer not to, but since they don't have an option, um, and I mean, that's sort of a nice situation to be in, but I mean, it doesn't mean sort of automatic success or easy su uh, success, but maybe sort of unpack that as social value, heart value, as really economic value and actually economic advantage. That's yeah, another, another big question and one that we obviously spend a ton of time thinking about at Thrive you know, as a conscious business that's serving conscious consumers. And to your point, like we're at an inflection point. 
is, is historically right like in a moment in time where all of a sudden uh the the distinction between sort of traditional value and conscious consumer value is merging the distinction between utilitarian you know utility and values is is really blurring um so we do think about that a lot but i would say i would actually say one thing first and that is that uh, even before that inflection, um, you know, I would argue that the kind of uh, economic idea of how what a company is, you know, just whose purpose is to serve profit, has never reflected the reality of the greatest, um, most impactful businesses. Um, I saw I, saw, I read a quote a few years ago that really stuck in my head. I can't even remember who it was, but it, it said. Um, you know, saying that the purpose of a company is to is to make profit is like saying that the purpose of living is to breathe. Right? Like <laughs> uh-huh. money, profit is oxygen. It yeah. enables a company to pursue its mission, to pursue its purpose. And if you're only living to breathe, if you're only living to eat, if you're only living to have sex, whatever your basic needs are, if that's sure. all you're doing, you're you're not living at all, right? And and that doesn't inspire people. It's never. It hasn't created the civilizations of the of the world. It hasn't created the progress of the world. Like the, the even the economic progress of the world, I would argue, is made more. Uh, you know, is is made by people that have a, a more expansive view and businesses that have had a more expansive purpose. Um, and I think that's been true throughout history. Like profit doesn't inspire people. Self interest does not. Like pure self interest does not inspire people. And I think that is true today, but it was also true before. Um, I think what's different today is that uh, is that consumers are waking up in a way where they actually care about the purpose of a business, uh, and they uh, and they are you know particularly uh, in in the West and particularly in the U.S. They are at a place where some of those basic needs, the food, the shelter, the you know, whatever, have been taken care of to such an extent. That their 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 consciousness is raised, and they are thinking about uh, the values that go beyond that. And I think if you go in the developing world, you know they aren't thinking about global warming as much. Uh, I think that they'll get the, they'll start thinking about it sooner than we did in the West because you know they're they're on an accelerated path. But if you don't have shelter over your head, if you don't have you know sustenance in your in your in your body, you can't be thinking about that. Fortunately, we're at a, a stage in the U.S. where most people have that stuff, and as a result, their their consciousness is elevated. They're thinking about the future for their children. They're thinking about the future for our planet. They are uh, they are caring about where the products they buy come from, um, and that evolu- that shift in thinking is happening very very fast. I mean, it's it's been transformed mm. even since we launched Thrive in 2014-2015. I mean, we 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 did carbon neutral shipping from the day we we launched because we believed it was the right thing to do. Um, at that time, nobody was talking about regenerative agriculture. Most people didn't even know what that was. Um, we didn't get any inquiries about our carbon neutral shipping offsets from a, a, from customers. We didn't even talk about it, really, right? Uh-huh. And now we get as many inquiries about carbon neutral shipping as we do about free shipping. You know, this morning we had an email go out to our entire membership base about our sustainable packaging initiatives. We would have never done that five years ago. Right, we did it that stuff because it was the right thing. There was a passionate subset of our customers even then who really cared about you know being 100% recyclable, using uh, compostable uh, denim lining for our, for our frozen uh, frozen orders. I mean, all these things that we did. There was always a subset of people that cared, but most people 
um, would have liked to hear about it if we told them, but they weren't, that wasn't driving their purchase decisions. And that has changed. Um, and I think that is the, that is the, um, the opportunity for Thrive. Um, and frankly, it's, it's the power that we have to go out and actually really change the world. Um, because Thrive Market can be one business that responds to that, and we can make healthy living accessible to every American family. But we need businesses in every industry to be responding to that consumer demand. And you know, one of the things that we want to do is set a template to show, you know, one, consumers will respond to it, and that can be a source of business value, like you said. Like it actually becomes a competitive mode. It actually becomes the core of the brand. It actually becomes the reason that people are retained. And I think we've shown that. Like if you look at our retention rates, you look at our engagement rates, you look at our NPS score, you look at the percentage of, mem- of members who are being referred by another member, um, the percentage of our sales that we're having to spend on marketing, all of those are best in class metrics because, and I would argue, the mission, which just creates this flywheel effect in the business. Um, and to your point, that competitive mode, it's the thing that can't be replicated. Right. What we have in mission is what brands in the 20th century had with their brand. And it used to be that the way you, you built a brand was by, you know, uh, basically buying it for, you know, buying it and spending a lot of time building it. Right. Yeah. And like there's, you know, there, there were great brand values and great brand equity, but it was more or less built by just inundating people over enough time that it became familiar. And like our parents bought the products that they had always bought. You know, we had the same items in our pantry like yeah. my entire life growing up. And those items were made by a few major conglomerate CPG businesses. And if I looked on the back of every cereal, it was always General Mills or Post. It's just the way it was, right? And today's consumers are not like that, right? They're not loyal to a brand. They're loyal to their values. And so, you know, we focused on creating tools that empower our members to live their values, whether it's truly just the ability to shop by values. We tag every product across 150 different filters, uh, we do it by the curation of the catalog, by only having food that's non-GMO, by going deep and early into regenerative on our supply chain for our Thrive Market brand. Um, and, and again, my hope is you know, that's going to propel Thrive Market success, but I also really wanted to show as an example to other would-be successful companies that'll say, hey, this actually is part of the formula for success. It's not just, like you said, an accoutrement or an appendage or a bolt-on that you sort of do after the, after the fact, right? It actually yeah. can should be core to the DNA of the business. And if it's not, consumers will be aware of that and they're not going to be loyal. Yeah. I love that distinction between the loyalty to the product versus like the loyalty to the values. I mean, I think it's really interesting because um, you do see things that you would have thought would have never, um, I'm just making this up, but I read something along the lines of like something like a Snicker bar that I, both of us probably grew up with, which was like the leading candy bar. And you wouldn't think that Snicker bars was always in this like God position. And then all of a sudden it's like, it's now sales are slipping on things that you just thought were omnipotent. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, I mean, my parents would have never even questioned I would have never questioned unless I was surrounded by people that were helping me sort of educate me about, uh, you know, processes and behind the scenes, what's happening. And so, and then are you sort of seeing, so tell me a little bit about how you guys now with the sort of a a sense of critical mass are actually um, not only just providing products for mission, but actually going back downstream and saying, look guys, uh, maybe you're going to have an internal conversations and I don't know what this evolution looks like, but 
at certain numbers of customers providing certain amount of um, activity, you can look downstream and say, I think you're starting to talk to him about packaging, for instance, or you're starting to talk about how like the standards that you're pushing down through the supply chain, which are always the invisible part that so few people see, but really are the systemic moments uh, all the way back to the soil. I mean, sort of take us through either if it's not happening, is it on your guys' radar or if it is happening, what's it looking like from your vantage point to say like, hey, we have an opportunity here, not just to um, move particular products, but we also have opportunities to leverage our force of good to help out those people downstream or would it be downstream or upstream? I, I don't know what the metaphor would be. Point being is that all the people behind the scenes that are providing you the goods also have a, elements of practices and, and what they're doing. So, so I mean, how, how are you helping people out during the, in the whole ecosystem besides your consumer? Yeah. 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 It's a great question. And, you know, downstream, upstream, I think we think, we think about it as going up the supply chain. Yeah. 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 I hear you. And, um, and look, there are, there are a lot of conscious companies already out there, like incredible brands that are doing transformative things, many of whom have been doing it for, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, even before the conscious consumer movement was really a groundswell. And so one of the most exciting things for us has been actually supporting that ecosystem of conscious brands, of, of, of the, you know, the brands and founders who've been at it for a decade when they were hitting their head against a brick wall, you know, going back and forth to Latin America, setting up, you know, free trade or sorry, fair trade um, um, supply chains, working on early efforts towards what we would now call regenerative agriculture. Uh, like a lot of that stuff has been happening behind the scenes, below the surface for a long time. And so, you know, the first thing that we try to do, we don't step in and say, hey, we're the savior. We've got the idea. We're going to rebuild everything from the ground up. We say who's out there doing it in the most authentic, effective uh, way, but we can now help to scale faster and to reach more conscious consumers. And that's been one of the most gratifying aspects of, of the platform that we built to Thrive has been just really being a, 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 a launch point for these conscious brands to start to go main, mainstream, to start to reach, mm. reach a broader base. And because we're online, and because of the capabilities we have with content, because of the influencer network we have, we can tell their story in a way that it's never been told on the shelf. So that's the first thing. And it doesn't involve reinventing anything. It's just surfacing the amazing work that's already happening. The second side for us has been, to your point, as we've actually gotten to scale, we have had the ability now to, to go further up the supply chain, to partner directly with producers, to focus on innovation that maybe isn't happening. And that's where we can go, go and see in a category all right, like there's, you know, these, this, this brand is doing this brand, this brand is doing that, but there's actually this gap. And our, our members often are the ones that tell us that like oh, we, yeah. we, we need a product in this category that doesn't have, isn't loaded with sugar. Like we want a mayonnaise that isn't made with canola oil. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we can't find a single nut butter that doesn't have palm oil that is you know, <laughs> destroying, destroying orangutan habitat. Or if we can find it, it's not at a price point that we can afford it. And so those are situations where we'll, we'll start with that problem. It gets illuminated usually from one, from a, a set of our members and we'll actually go build the supply chain ourselves. And that's been really gratifying as well. And it's really only been the last few years that we've gotten a greater scale where, you know, we've launched new programs like our meat and seafood program, 
where you know we were, were partnered with a brand new farmers collective down in Patagonia to build the highest quality ethical meat and seafood program in the country. You know, we did that essentially from scratch. Um, you know, where we can partner with, like I said, regenerative supply chains in in South America on coffee, for example, where everyone's been aware of the fair trade issues and the labor issues with coffee. Well, we went and we found a farmers collaborative that is doing work on the fair trade side, actually putting funds back into the community for education, but also on the regenerative ag side to you know combat climate change and do their part from an environmental standpoint. So that stuff's been really, really fun. And I think what's cool there is we're still in the first out of the first inning. You know, we're approaching a million members. We're doing hundreds of millions of dollars of sales. But if you compare us to Walmart, you know, we are barely scratching the surface. Um, I'll tell you, there's like, there's actually some interesting stuff happening at, at bigger platforms like Walmart, where they are starting to recognize the, the groundswell of conscious consumers they're recognizing their role on sustainability and actually doing things that are innovative. Um, and so I look at our platform and say, Hey, if we can do what we're doing now uh, at this scale, what can we do as we get, get, you know, even larger with that, you know, that, that mission already baked in. And how do you sort of maintain the integrity of, you know, uh, you know, I mean, a founding vision always sort of changes as you grapple with real time circumstances, but I mean, it seems like you guys are really functioning from um, uh, a really a holistic view. How do you um, sort of navigate the, those inevitable moments where, I mean, capital has its expectations, right? Um, and I mean, it's sort of a beast at times. Um, it can be timing expectations. It can be uh, performance expectations. How are you navigating that relationship? Because all of what we've talked about so far has been sort of the poetry uh, you know, I mean, of impact, but let's just talk a little bit about sort of the grammar, the more the elbow pushing side of um, large businesses like yours that will inevitably uh, become more and more institutionalized. And I'm just using that verb very lightly. Uh, but sort of walk us through what goes through you as somebody that's like, you know, hey, look, regardless of how this ends um, uh, or how it continues, I want to make sure that Nick Green continually evolves in a way that I'm proud of um, and um, that, I, you know, that I can mirror back to my family. I can mirror back to people that have put their heart and soul into this platform. Take us through that dance between because you're in the room with the capital, but you're also with the room. You're also um, seeing people face to face who are packing boxes um, and stuff like that. So you have a very unique vantage point. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course. Yeah. And I look, I feel that responsibility at a personal level, like you said, just to my own integrity and my own values. And, you know, for me, again, it goes back to like, I think about my mom, I think about my family. I think about like the reason that I, that I am doing this and, um, staying true to that. I also, though, to your point, think about the responsibility to, uh, all of the other thrivers and that's our, our community of, of, of employees, but mm -hmm. it's also our community of members, which is now approaching a million people uh, who are increasingly at Thrive because of the mission. Um, and it's also our investors. You know, we actually uh, got, I now say lucky, but it was one of the most uh, trying periods of the business. We got rejected by a hundred plus VCs when we out, went out fundraising. Um, they just didn't get the, they didn't get the vision. They didn't think we had the background to, to build it. 
um, and they weren't as motivated by the mission. And so we we raised our first eight million dollars in you know twenty five fifty thousand dollar increments from a bunch of individuals who did believe in what we were doing. You know, those people now are sitting on huge paper wins. Like they're going to monetize that in a massive way at some point, which I'm incredibly excited about. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't why they invested. They invested because they believed in the mission. And, you know, I do believe over the long run, we will deliver a better return to those shareholders far and away by focusing on the vision and the mission and being long-term. There are so many points already where we could have fallen off that path, points that we could have sold the business, uh, cut this journey short. Um, I think we'll create massive shareholder value by, by, by staying true to it. Um, and I also believe that if we created shareholder value by going away from our values, we would be letting down all of those early investors. So I feel really fortunate that we have built a stakeholder-driven business where our members, our employees, and our investors from the very beginning have said, do this for this reason. And so it's not just about Nick Green doing it for his integrity. I'm do- like, it's about our entire business feeling that commitment as well. And then, you know, as we have scale to your point, like it's not all poetry. Like you have to get, like you have to capitalize the business. Um, there is more and more conscious capital out there but, you know, even uh, as, as recently as four or five years ago when we raised our Series B, you know, that was a $100 million round. There were not a lot of, like, uh, impact <laughs> funds that were writing $100 million checks. Um, and, uh, and so we, we ended up finding an investor that was not formally an impact fund um, at all um, and yet really understood our mission, really aligned to our vision, um, and also was very patient capital. So, you know, we brought in, uh, called Invis, they're out of New York. Um, they, uh, they have a, a one single LP. They're, they're an evergreen fund, so they're not out raising capital all the time. They've done phenomenally well over the years, but they've done it by investing in great businesses, holding them, and being supportive and patient and very hands-on. And they've, uh, they've been incredibly value-add to us and, uh, and really been a proof point that you don't have to be an impact investor to have great values. Um, and not every private equity investor or growth equity investor has sharp elbows. Um, so I think we've, uh, we sort of lucked out that way that we, one, got rejected by all the VCs early on, which really baked the, the early coalition. And then two, when we did raise a lot of capital, uh, we got a phenomenal partner on board. And you know, that's, what really, that's what really, I think, sets it up for us. You know, you know, we've done formal things as well in terms of you know, creating... Uh, founder voting shares so that we formally can continue to control the business. That's very important. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you don't have the right people around you, the that formal stuff doesn't matter at all. So <laughs> I think that's that's the part that's been unique for us. And and uh, and everyone is aligned on playing the long game. Yeah. So you mentioned um, uh, 50 plus, 100 plus VCs that said no to you originally that couldn't see the vision. Um, some people would frame that as rejection. Um, and I mean, it's hard not to take that stuff personally. Uh, how did you, you know- First of all, that, that is rejection. That's not- a <laughs> It is rejection. Actually speaking, it was rejection times, you know, 150 or whatever it was. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a lot of like phone calls that are emails that you get or walking out of rooms- where, where you're sort of just holding your tail. It's like, what is our, so there's always that moment of questioning, um, you know, your own self-trust when I'm guessing this happened to you when like you were in your twenties more, you were probably mid to late twenties when a lot of this was happening. You're, I'm guessing you're more in your mid thirties now. And 
Um, but as we get older, we have less energy to overcome sort of those things. And so I just want to sort of get at, besides having a lot of just physiological energy, just because of where you are in life. And that's one of the beauties of sort of the tech scene is that people have an enormous amount of energy based just on sheer physiology of being in your twenties. Um, that's why you don't see a lot of startups if people in their fifties and sixties but you're still dealing with, with rejection and, and, and you still have to get out of bed and you still have to say yes to what you believe in. Can you walk us through just a little bit? And I mean, I'm sort of just going to round out our chat around this moment of like, you had to give your own self inspiration or you had to go find it and continually find it. Yeah. I mean, that's, you're hitting on, on huge questions. And I think part of it is, uh, you know, part of it is just uh, leaning into the rejection and how do you, how do you psychologically and physiologically experience that rejection? Because, you know, if you, if you, if you cheer away your response to it, what does rejection actually mean? It doesn't mean anything, mm-hmm. right? So there's no inherent meaning to that. There's the meaning that we assign. And it's going to get a little bit woo-woo or a little philosophical, but there's meaning that we assign to it. And if you assign the meaning of like, I'm worthless. I'm never going to make it. Uh, like, what am I missing? You know, all the like self-doubt, self-critic, like, and I have it as, as much as anyone else. Right. But if you apply all of that, um, all the time to your point, like it's just crushing. And unless you have a sort of superhuman energy, which I don't think I even had in my mid twenties, um, you're not going to be able to overcome that. So, you know, the alternative to drinking 10 cups of coffee a day and like, you know, somehow creating energy that is, is not physically sustainable to power through that rejection is to learn to interpret it in a different way. And I think that can, that can come through training. I can come through meditation. Some people are just gifted in the sense that they naturally kind of let, let it, uh, let it roll off uh, in a way that, that most of us don't. Um, I certainly wasn't, I don't think any of those things. Um, and in fact, you know, my first 18 years of life I talked about were like, you know, jumping through every hoop, checking every box, getting straight A's, never failing. I was terrified of rejection, right? And I, and, I, and I didn't get to experience a lot of it. And one of the best ways to strengthen yourself, it's like resistance training of any sort. You got to like, you actually have to fail. And so um, the, the best thing that happened to me for the, for the rejection that thrived was that I'd already had so much failure in the first business, <laughs> You know, and again, I go back to that thing that we failed, we failed our way to success. Ultimately, I sold the business. It was a great outcome. Uh, we actually did have a lot of impact on, on tens of thousands of students, which I'm incredibly proud of. But I made so many mistakes in that business. And, um, and you, like one of two things had to happen to that process. One is you, uh, your ego fights the, the recognition that you are not as good as you thought you were. <laughs> And you try to like develop all sorts of explanations for why you're still this, you know, great, special, perfect person. And like everything's gone wrong around you. And the amount of energy it takes to continue, like to keep that narrative going is also (laughs) superhuman. Or you finally give up and say like, all right, I'm, uh, I am flawed. Uh, I need a team. I need a team around me. Uh, These are the things that I'm good at. These are the things I'm definitely not. Um, I'm always improving, but I'm never going to be perfect. And I might not even be great at a lot of things um, and sort of being okay with that. And, you know, that's an ongoing journey. I'm not saying that I'm at a place where like every, every rejection, the rejections don't still sting, 
but they do feel different. And I think part of that was getting through that first business required me to, you know, like uh, recalibrate my ego a little bit and no longer be committed to the idea of perfection. So um, the, the, the months that we were rejected by 150 plus VCs were some of the worst that I've ever had. It was, there's no way to turn, to, to turn that off. Like it is deep in our physiologically not to want to be socially rejected. Like that is an evolutionary (laughs) principle of humanity. But, um, but I think because I had some distance from it, my ego was somewhat separated from it. And I wasn't like, I wasn't emotionally committed to being perfect any longer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were, I was able to power through and like, that's, that is the name of the game with entrepreneurship. And, uh, it enables you to expend a lot less energy powering through, um, you know, rejection and setback and challenges, which is what it's all about. Mm. Wow. That was a lot of discovery. Uh, Nick, I want to thank you so much. Um, I love the way you connect all the dots. Um, you know, I can tell that you're a very sort of um, heart-driven, but, but also sort of, uh, not sort of, but a very savvy, uh, malleable, non-linear, yet formal pattern thinker, diagnoser. And yet you're also just really vulnerable at the same time of realizing like, hey, I- I'm human. Um, and to surround yourself with people that can help fill in your fullness um, as, you know, essentially, and you too, in return, help them fill in things that, um, you know, they may not be as adept in, but it's a beautiful story that um, you have uh, very helpful in the impact space for other people that are doing their own uh, context for impact, whether it's in allocating money or, you know, starting businesses and so forth. So, Really want to thank you and feel very fortunate that uh, Brahim introduced us. It was a really fun conversation. We, we hit on a lot of big and deep topics, and I know it was quick, but uh, thank you for facilitating. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com.